Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. As always, please open your Bible there as we continue in our study in the book of Hebrews. Welcome again to Christ the King on this Thanksgiving Sunday. We're delighted you've joined us. We find ourselves here nearing the end of the book of Hebrews, but still with a, a ways to go. We come now to a rather intense portion of this sermon. It takes both warning and encouragement to sustain perseverance in the Christian life. We need both, and Hebrews includes both. This morning's text is, I think, the pastor's strongest warning in the entire sermon of Hebrews. Next week, when we finish chapter 10, we'll consider what is his strongest encouragement. As your pastor, I ask you to attend to both of these passages carefully in these weeks. You may not feel the same way about both of them. That's fine. It's fine even if one or the other of them seems more significant to you personally. But the fact is we all need both of them. We need to heed the pastor's warning and we need to draw strength from the pastor's encouragement. How we live as Christians isn't a game, dear friends. Eternity hangs in the balance. As we said two weeks ago and have often said in this series, this is what Hebrews is for. You have need of endurance, the pastor will say in our passage next week, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Knowing our need of endurance, the pastor issues his warning and then offers his, his encouragement. This morning we'll be looking at the pastor's strong warning in verses 26 to 31. Of course, this is not the first warning passage we've encountered in Hebrews. We first heard the warning note back in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where the pastor writes, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? if we neglect such a great salvation. Then in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, the pastor wrote, quoting first the words from Psalm 95, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then we read this in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. They are like land that is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Yes, the pastor has warned us before. But we're in a different part of Hebrews now. Those warnings came before the pastor's central exposition 
As you know, if you've been with us, chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 18 contains the central teaching of Hebrews focused on Christ's high priesthood. The pastor has now instructed his hearers in the full sufficiency of their high priest. He has now given them and us the solid food of the mature. And he assumes we've eaten it. And so the pastor now raises the alarm lest his hearers abandon the salvation provided by Christ's priesthood. The urgency you may have felt as you heard Ashan read these verses. This urgency can be explained by the fact that the pastor has made the greatness of Christ's provision clear. The bottom line of our text this morning is that there is no other way of salvation if one abandons the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. How could there be? As the pastor has so carefully explained, there is no other means of forgiveness. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, chapter 12, verse 12 says. His sacrifice is the only remedy for human sin and sinfulness. As the pastor has magnificently explicated for his hearers, the past sufficiency of Christ is real, making the consequences of rejecting that provision tragic. What we're talking about this morning is apostasy. We're talking about the rejection of Christ by those who once followed him. The willful repudiation of the gospel by those who once identified it as good news. And what's supposed to happen as we hear this text is that we're supposed to say in response to it, Lord, this is not me. Verses 26 to 31 of Hebrews 10 aren't about me. I'm never going to be like that. That's the response the pastor wants and even expects from us, I think. Because as we'll see next week, the pastor knows his readers haven't fallen away. The purpose of the warning in this text is to admonish them not to do so. The pastor means for us to feel revulsion at the description here of one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, outraged the spirit of grace. You and I are supposed to hear these verses and say from the depths of our souls, Dear God, may it never be. And then having responded in that way, I think we're to understand that it could be. Should we fail to heed the pastor's warning? It takes both warning and encouragement to sustain perseverance in the Christian life. God give us ears now to hear this warning. 
Over the last two weeks, we've considered the three exhortations that were in verses 21 to 25. Draw near, hold fast, help one another. We begin now to grasp their profound seriousness as we turn to verse 26 this morning. Because the very first word of that verse is for. Why are those exhortations in verses 21 to 25 so important? Because for, as verse 26 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, this is what the pastor's exhortations that we spent two weeks considering, this is what they are intended to prevent, dear friends. We're to draw near and hold fast and help one another in order to ensure that we don't go on sinning deliberately. What is it the pastor is describing here in verse 26? The key word is deliberately. That word occurs only twice in the New Testament, here and in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, where it's translated as not under compulsion. The word has a sense of exercising one's will. In other words, uh, in some other Greek writings, the noun form of this word is used for those who serve as volunteers. In other words, what verse 26 describes is not believers who are struggling with sin, or even those who have besetting sins that they battle against in their spiritual lives. Rather, verse 26 refers to those who deliberately, willfully, intentionally reject God's commands and who therefore flagrantly continue in their sin. What I think the pastor has in mind is a deliberate, sinful lifestyle of rebellion against the gospel. It's the kind of person Proverbs 2, verses 13 to 15 describes as one of those, Proverbs 2, verse 13, those who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, people whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. Furthermore, the verb the pastor uses has a durative sense to it. Not only is it deliberate or willful sinning, it's ongoing. We could translate the beginning of verse 26 as, if we persist in willful sinning. One commentator says the phrase describes a conscious expression of an attitude that displays contempt for God. The sinning the pastor describes here is intentional, persistent, and informed. And it's only made worse when we see who it is that carries out this persistent, willful sinning. According to the pastor, the ones who are said here to go on sinning deliberately do so after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In other words, they do so after they were converted. The pastor's talking about Christians in verse 26. 
He even includes himself in the condition along with his readers. Did you notice that? He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now that phrase, the knowledge of the truth, appears elsewhere in the New Testament, specifically within the pastoral epistles. It seems to simply describe those who are saved. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what the recipients of Hebrews had received, the pastor says. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. The opening of Titus in Titus 1 verse 1 reads, Paul, a servant of God, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. To say, as the pastor does, that one has received the knowledge of the truth is to say that it has been comprehended. It has been both intellectually grasped and appropriated in the life of faith. In other words, it accords with godliness, as Titus 1 verse 1 says. As I read it, knowledge of the truth refers to conversion, to embracing the Christian faith when one is saved. This is what the pastor knows his hearers have done. Rather than calling their faith into question, the pastor here is affirming it to be genuine. The point, as I see it, is that if one defiantly turns away from Christ after salvation, there is no sacrifice for their sins. I concur with the way one commentator puts it. It is clear that the writer has apostasy in mind. The people in question know what God has done in Christ. Their acquaintance with Christian teaching is more than superficial. If, knowing this, they revert to an attitude of rejection, of continual sin, then there remains no sacrifice for sins. Such people have rejected the sacrifice of Christ, and the preceding argument, meaning of Hebrews, has shown that there is no other sacrifice. In the end, the point would seem to be much like the one the pastor made earlier in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. We read part of this text already this morning. Take care, the pastor writes in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the key. Sin deceives, dear friends. Where sin, notice the pastor doesn't specify precisely what kind of ongoing deliberate willful sinning is in view. He need not specify it. Where sin is permitted to go unchecked in our lives, over time, it can harden our very hearts, even to the point of no return. 
the terrifying point when what we want is to go on sinning deliberately. The point at which, as the pastor put it in chapter 6, verse 4, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Because it's the point at which we no longer will repent, you see. Those who confess their sin, those who repent of their evil, demonstrate that they aren't guilty of the apostasy warned against here. It's not that at some point the cross of Jesus Christ simply runs out or that it can no longer atone for one's sin, so constant has it been. No, it's that you and I cannot receive forgiveness through the once-for-all offering of Jesus Christ if we have come to the point of defiantly rejecting him. Hebrews has shown us Christ's self-offering alone provides release from sin and access to God. But should we come to the point at which we will not repent, when we will no longer trust in that provision of Christ for forgiveness, but instead persist in willfully sinning, well, what then? Verse 27 gives the answer. Then... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, the pastor says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The pastor has in view in this verse the final judgment, the day when God's enemies will be completely destroyed. It won't be so for the faithful on that day, of course, as we've seen, the assured hope of final salvation at Christ's return is the hallmark of the faithful. Chapter 9, verse 28 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Such eager waiting involves obedience. We've often quoted Hebrews 5, verse 9, but it's worth hearing again. Speaking of Jesus, our high priest, the pastor writes, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. For the faithful, Jesus Christ has removed the fear of judgment and replaced it with the joyful anticipation of life in God's eternal kingdom. Our prospect is one of salvation, life with God in a place. But for those who have repudiated Christ, that hope has been exchanged for a fearful expectation. We could translate it a fearful prospect of judgment. Judgment is what lies before those who have rejected Christ, whether or not they anticipate it. The language of verse 26 could not possibly be more sobering. The pastor describes the nature of this judgment by a clear allusion to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 11. In that passage, Isaiah depicts a contrast between the righteous, 
who walk in the ways of God and long for his presence, and the wicked, who go on doing evil in spite of God's grace towards them, whereas the righteous look forward to the judgments of God on the earth, the wicked belong to the ranks of God's enemies, for whom the fire is reserved. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 11 declares, O Lord, let the fire for your adversaries consume them. But you see, what was meant to shock the hearers of Hebrews wasn't the fact that God would come in judgment against the wicked. Of course he would. They knew that. What was meant to shock was the suggestion that should they, should they fail to heed the pastor's warning, they who had received the knowledge of the truth could find themselves in fact among the adversaries of the Lord. Yet the pastor says this is what awaits those who repudiate Christ. As one commentator puts it, those who fear God through obedience need fear nothing else. But those who do not must fear an awesome judge, for they have become his enemies. Verses 28 and 29 of our passage simply underscore the point. The pastor uses in these two verses the lesser to greater form of argumentation he has employed previously in Hebrews. Only this time the pastor uses it to underscore the magnitude not of the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, but of the great punishment due the one who has repudiated him. Verse 28 gives the lesser case, and verse 29 the greater. And look at the text now again as I read these verses, and then we'll go back and comment. The pastor writes in verse 28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's the lesser. Then comes the greater in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. In establishing the lesser side of his argument in verse 28, the pastor draws upon two texts from Deuteronomy. When he speaks of the evidence of two or three witnesses, the pastor alludes to Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Significantly, verses 2 to 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 17 describe the death penalty due to one who breaks the covenant through idolatry. Deuteronomy 17, verse 2. Listen to this passage. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, meaning what? Verse 3, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden. And it is told you, 
and you hear of it. Then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. And then comes the allusion in our passage. This is verse 6 of Deuteronomy 17. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Notice the context. The issue in Deuteronomy 17 is flagrant idolatry. An utter repudiation of the covenant the Lord had made with Israel. That's what setting aside the law of Moses means. Setting aside makes it sound gentle, sort of. That's not the sense of it. The term was often used for rejecting God or his law. To set aside the law means to disregard it, to reject it, to blatantly rebel against it. One scholar says it is the rejection of the law as a whole. It was a total abandonment of the God who gave them his covenant law. And so serious was the offense that they were not to carry out the required punishment on the basis of a single human witness. It required two or even three. But... When such testification was in place, the judgment was then not to be delayed. Anyone who has done this dies without mercy. There the pastor alludes to a second Deuteronomy passage, this time in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 to 10. Like Deuteronomy 17, the subject in Deuteronomy chapter 13 is idolatry. Only this time, the death penalty is for the one who entices someone else to commit idolatry. Deuteronomy 13, verse 8 says of such a person, You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. They are to die without mercy. Brothers and sisters, we must rightly grasp the pastor's point here. If idolatry can be used as the lesser case in verse 28 within the context of the Old Covenant, then the greater case in verse 29, the repudiation of Christ, must be equivalent to a total abandonment of God and of God's provision for salvation that will result in separation from the household of faith. Only what could be worse than the earthly punishment of death according to the Mosaic law? Answer, the heavenly punishment of eternal loss. Final judgment is the fate awaiting the apostate on the last day. One commentator writes, just as the provision of Christ is better, because it leads to ultimate salvation, so the punishment of those who reject Christ is worse, because it consists in ultimate perdition. 
The God by whom such people will be considered worthy of eternal retribution is none other than the God who pronounced judgment on the Old Testament idolater. That teaching does not sit easily for us today. But remarkably, the pastor doesn't think he even has to argue his case, does he? With only a simple aside, simply with the words, do you think, in verse 29, he means to bring his hearers right along with him. For after hearing all that the pastor has said in Hebrews, could they really contest this judgment on those who have rejected Christ and all Christ has done to provide salvation? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? The pastor says. The pastor then provides three descriptions in verse 29 which make clear the heinousness of the apostasy in view. First, the pastor says such a person has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Trampling underfoot is a verb that is used elsewhere outside of Scripture even to recall the trampling of a temple by pagans. It has the sense of dishonoring, spurning, treating with disdain. Only lest we miss the deep significance of this, the pastor makes clear that by repudiating Christ, the one the apostate has trampled underfoot is in fact the Son of God, the eternal agent of revelation and salvation, the one whom God himself has exalted to the place of all authority at his right hand, we know from chapter 1, the one under whose feet God will make all his enemies a footstool. As one author puts it, the full title, Son of God, emphasizes the shocking character of apostasy. It not only falls from grace, it mocks the giver of grace. Second, the pastor says such a person has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Calling to mind all that he has said concerning Christ's sacrifice, the pastor indicates that to repudiate Christ is to account the very blood that had provided for our salvation to be a common or profane thing. It is to treat Christ's blood as if it were no different from any other blood. When in fact, the pastor has argued at length that it is Jesus's blood that secures eternal redemption, that cleanses the conscience that removes sin, that gives access to God's presence. It is the blood of the covenant because as we have seen, it is Jesus's death that inaugurates the new covenant between God and his people. For the apostate, it is none of that. Even though it was the very blood by which the pastor explicitly says in our text, he was sanctified. The apostate now regards it as no different from any other. To his mind, it is not holy. It is common. 
He has profaned the blood of the covenant. But even that's not the end of it. Third, the pastor says such a person has outraged the spirit of grace. Those who reject the blood of Jesus do not merely sin against the Spirit. The sense here is that they insult, they mock, they even despise the Spirit. Though for most of Hebrews the pastor has been focused on the sufficiency of Christ, he clearly affirms the gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to the faithful through the work of Christ. He is the Spirit of Jesus, of course. By calling him here the spirit of grace, the pastor probably means he is the spirit who grants and gives grace. The spirit sent by the son to his people. The spirit who brings the reality of the new covenant to life in our hearts. The word translated here as outrage means literally to show haughtiness or arrogance towards someone. It includes within it the Greek word that we bring into English as hubris. To put the emphasis here on the offense taken by the Spirit is somewhat to miss the pastor's focus. As one scholar puts it, the pastor means to draw attention to the fact that the apostate has rejected with haughty disdain the very one who is not only gracious, but has administered the grace of God to his life. Such a person has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, and outraged the Spirit of grace. Taken together, those three depictions are meant to repel you. The point is not that the pastor wants or expects his hearers or expects us to find ourselves in that description in verse 29, God forbid, the point is that the hearers and you and I will be so revulsed by these descriptions that our resolve to do as the pastor has exhorted us to do in verses 21 to 25 is redoubled and redoubled again. As one author insightfully puts it, they, meaning the hearers or readers of Hebrews, they may approach this point of apostasy gradually, but if unchecked, the pastor knows his hearers could themselves come to the point of definitively, willfully, and indeed probably publicly repudiating the one whose cleansing power they once experienced. With this description of the apostate, the author would dissuade any of his hearers from following this path, lest they suffer the dire consequences awaiting them at its end. Let all who are aroused to concern by the force of his warning take heed, yet let them also take comfort. Those in whom the pastor's words evoke concern have themselves not come to such a destiny. 
Which is why, dear friends, to finally cement his warning and turn us forever away from this path, the pastor in the final two verses of our passage turns our attention to the holy character of God. The apostate one will face such a terrible end, and the reason is clear. Verse 30 says, For we know him. Him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Far from attempting to get God off the hook somehow, the pastor makes clear that the judgment awaiting those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth is in fact grounded in God's very character. We know him. The pastor says, This is the God who spoke these very words long ago, words taken from the well-known song of Moses that can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. They are words which both affirm God's right to judge and God's promise that he will do so. In Deuteronomy 32, they are words of judgment against the idolatrous nations who refuse to acknowledge him. Here in Hebrews, the point is surely by now clear. For those who turn away from the provision found in Jesus Christ, it will be no different. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The same holy God who will bring judgment against the wicked nations, will one day train that judgment on those of his own people who have abandoned him. The Lord will judge his people, the pastor writes. These quotations come from verses 35 and 36 of Deuteronomy 32. As we come now to the final verse of our text this morning, listen to what comes shortly after those verses in Deuteronomy, beginning in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And indeed, what in all the universe could be more terrible for the one who has fallen away from the living God? What could be more terrible than to fall into this same God's hands. Brothers and sisters, this need not be the future for any of us, and it won't be 
if the pastor's warning does the work it's meant to do in our lives. Having heard this terrible warning, what are we to do? Well, I think the pastor would have us now turn our attention fully to one who knows very well the fear these verses describe and who did fall into his father's hands so that we never have to. On the night of his arrest, Jesus went into the garden of Gethsemane to pray and Luke tells us how he prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Jesus cried. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, Luke writes, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus Christ was not shrinking merely from the physical death that awaited him that terrible night. His horror was that of the eternal Son facing the experience of being made sin for us, of bearing the judgment of God in our place. He was delivered up so that we might be spared. He bore the wrath of God so that we might never have to. The pastor wrote in Hebrews 2 verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For yours and mine and those of all who live by faith. What else can we say but what the pastor has already said since we have a great priest over the house of God? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.